0: We started chapter 12 last week. And if you remember, the uh, scribes and the Pharisees have been following Jesus continually, just looking for things to pick at, just looking for something to be upset about, really uh, looking for reasons to not believe that he is the Messiah. And uh, the beginning of chapter 12, if you remember, the disciples are walking through the grain fields and they just picked up some of the heads of grain roll out their hands, and uh, then they just pop the, the, what was left in their mouth to chew on it. it was something very, very common. Uh, but they accuse Jesus of allowing his disciples to break the Sabbath. And, uh, and it's interesting because Jesus doesn't get into the whole thing of like, you know, well, guys, come on, really, this isn't harvesting, and this isn't preparing a meal, and all of these things. He doesn't argue with them. He just hits them with two questions that I think just scrambled their minds. He talks about King David, who went into the temple and ate the showbread, uh, which was only supposed to be for the priests, but yet it was acceptable. And then the priests themselves, that every Sabbath, work in the temple. And again, they're working on the Sabbath. It's okay. And I think that the Pharisees just kind of went... We never thought about those things, right? And Jesus just lets those things kind of hang out there. He doesn't explain them. He doesn't explain why it's okay or any of that stuff. He just um, kind of scrambles their brain about it. And then he lets them know that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And this is one of those times where Jesus, to them, is telling them clearly who he is. To say that he's the Lord of the Sabbath is to say, I have full authority over it, I created it. He made the very first Sabbath. He wrote that fourth commandment. He wrote all the commandments. And so he's telling them, I have full authority over the Sabbath. Again, Jesus never broke any of the commandments, never broke any of the law, but he broke man's law about them, right? That there were stacks and stacks of laws that the Pharisees and others had... Uh, added to the law of god and uh and at this point they're just trying to trap him they're just trying to find something to accuse him of and they set a trap so jesus goes into the the synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand and they know that jesus is going to have compassion over that guy and so they ask him is it lawful to heal on the sabbath and jesus said well Which of you would have a sheep that falls into a pit or into a well on the Sabbath day and wouldn't get in and and rescue the sheep? And again, the mentality, the mindset was, well, of course we would. A sheep has value. A sheep has a dollar amount attached to it. Sure, we'd do that. And Jesus says, a man is of greater value. In other words, of course, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. And he tells him, instead of, again, arguing that point, he says, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he heals the guy right there. And again, they're envious, they're angry. And that continues as we finish up the chapter. Really, it's going to continue throughout the entire gospel. Um, Their envy of who Jesus is. that their power and their authority has been derived from the rules that they've created to put men under. And the Sabbath is a great example of that. Um, And Jesus is messing with their power. He's messing with their authority. And uh, they're furious about it. So as we continue into the rest of the chapter, the religious leaders, uh, again, they're upset about Jesus' popularity. And they're looking for a reason to not believe. But also what we're going to see that Jesus brings out through their questions, through their, their trying to trip him up, is the power that is in words. Now I think we, we think about that a lot, especially in church, as we think about the power that's in the word of God. But I don't think we necessarily think as much about the power that's in our words, the things that we say, the things that we say on the inside. Maybe they don't make it out, but there's great power in those things. And so Jesus is going to tell us a lot about that today, and it's, uh, I found it very convicting. <laughs> so... Uh, I'm sure you people won't, but I did. So we should pray, and we'll get into the rest of chapter 12. God, we thank you for what you have in store for us today, and we pray that you just give us ears to hear and a heart to receive every word from you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would teach us and that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So chapter 12 of Matthew, and we are going to be starting in verse 22, it says, Then one was brought to him who was demon possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. I know that's kind of a big chunk and there's a lot there, but we'll go through it and break it down uh, as usual. This man is brought to Jesus, and this guy's in bad shape he's demon-possessed, he's blind, and he's mute. So just one of those would have been a hopeless situation uh, in that day, and in most cases in our day still, right? And so this guy's brought to him, he's just a wreck, and um, Jesus just absolutely delivers, delivers him 100%. Now, this should be reason to celebrate. You would think that that everyone who saw this happen would be so overwhelmed with joy that this guy has been set free that there would be nothing but joy. And and I think for the most part, that's what we do see, that the the multitude that was there, uh, it says that they were amazed. And they began to ask with more intensity, not like this is the first time they've ever asked this, but they're asking now with more intensity is, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the son of David? that's what that reference there is in verse 23. However, the Pharisees find yet another reason to be critical, and we, we're told that it's, it's because of this jealousy, this envy of Jesus, that they see what he's done, they hear what the people are saying, and, and instantly they've got to come up with something, well, well, this is how he's doing because they can't say it's false. This guy, I'm sure that most of the people would have known, demon-possessed, blind and mute. Was probably well known in his community has been delivered so they can't say well that's not true so they got to come up with some reason why jesus is able to do this and they go oh well it's only because he's he's possessed by the leader of demons now, which could be referring to the devil himself but it could also be referring to like a hierarchy of demons saying well that's the only reason he, he can cast out demons is because he himself is demon possessed and i love how jesus handles it again he doesn't get caught up in all the details of their argument. He's just like, through logic, let's break that down. <laughs> right? Let's just look at how silly of an idea that is. That any kingdom, any house divided against itself is going to fall. There's no way it can stand. And that's just logic. Like even the devil knows that. Everybody knows that if once the division starts taking place within any group, unless there's drastic change, it's going to fall apart. And really the way that Jesus kind of presents this is to say, you know, there's only two possibilities here. So what they've thrown out, let's talk about that. And he just very quickly kind of dismisses it. Uh, But I think there's also the air of, if that were the case, you guys should be happy. Because it means that the kingdom of hell is divided and coming to desolation. But they're not happy, right? So as he kind of brushes that one aside... He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, who do your sin, sons cast them out? Uh, or who by by whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, if this is the power that you're being critical of, that Jesus is healing, delivering, and doing all of these things, and they're critical of that, what power do you guys operate by? And really, there's there's the I think the big point that he's making there is you don't right i mean they're not casting out demons they're not seeing people get healed they're not bringing about change in people's life they're they're bringing about uh this bondage to their rules and that's about it but the things that they are attempting they're certainly not doing it by the power of god and we see that as they're rea- reacting to jesus here right if they were attempting to follow God the Father and honor Him, then they would know who Jesus is. They would be honoring Jesus as well. And so Jesus is saying, like, if if I'm doing things by the power of the devil, then who are you guys following? Where is your power coming from? And He just very kind of, it wasn't that subtle, but He does point to it of what's behind the work that you're doing. Now, it is interesting that there was a, uh, a group of Jewish Pharisees that were kind of famous for casting out demons or attempting to, right? And there were different schools, uh, and it's, it's kind of turned into like a Jewish mysticism. And it was certainly uh, a, around in Jesus' day here. But in the research that's been done on the, these different groups, what they did was far, far more like witchcraft than anything else. That their focus wasn't on the power of God as much as it was on special prayers that they had put together and, and special anointing oil and incense that would be burnt, which was all just like witchcraft. It, it's the special word that's spoken. It's the special brew that's put together. And so in some ways, it could be Jesus was pointing to that as well, going, look, the guys that you, got, that you look to as the authority over demons, where do you think they're getting their power from? It isn't heaven. It's not God the Father. But then he kind of shows the contrast to that. So he's dismissed their argument, like I said, just simply through logic. And now, verse 28, he says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of heaven, excuse me, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is where Jesus gets very serious with them. No, not that he hasn't been serious, but It it takes a different tone at this point. Going, look, now's the point of decision. Because either it's by the power of the devil or it's by the power of God, but it's one or the other. And it's time to decide. Because if I'm casting out demons, if the things that I'm doing are by the power of God, then his kingdom is here. And again, it's, it's very intense the way that Jesus presents this to him, because it is time for them to make a decision. And it also, he begins to kind of explain what he's about. And for me, there's something about this description. I just, I love it. I, there's something that I just think is so cool, the way Jesus describes himself here, because it's not how we usually would think of Jesus. In verse 29, he says, but how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods Unless he first binds the strong man and then plunders his house. For years, for thousands of years, at this point, the strong man, the devil, has been comfortable in his fortress. Taking mankind captive. And Jesus is saying... (laughs) See... Nelson, he's following along, man. I like that. (laughs) The devil has been in his fortress, the strong man unopposed. And Jesus is saying, one stronger than, than him has arrived. And I have come to bind him and to rob him blind. I love it every time because, again, there's this forcefulness to it that we don't connect a lot of times with the character of Jesus. And he's going, look, one stronger than the strong man has arrived. That's me. And I'm binding him and one person at a time, every person I heal, every person I deliver, I'm stealing his treasure and I'm making it mine. And I'm going to plunder his house. Now, these leaders have already made up their mind about who they think Jesus is. They don't want him to be the Messiah. They don't want him to be the promised one. He's not doing things the way they want. And so they seem like they're asking questions. In fact, later on, we're going to see that they ask for a sign. Uh, And so they put on this air like they want to know. Oh, we we want you to prove it. You want, We want you to show us that you are who you are. But they've already convinced themselves that they don't want to know, that they don't want him to be be the Messiah. Um, but they're acting like, okay, well, let's see if he can convince us. See if Jesus can do something that, that will convince us that he is the Messiah. And people still do the same thing today, right? That, that people will go, well, you know, I've read parts of the Bible, or I've been to church, and I've heard things about Jesus, and, and I don't know. I just don't get it. And, and I found, especially like when I was in youth group, it seems like I would get in these conversations with very intelligent kids, and I loved these conversations where they would ask really hard questions, right? I, I, I love that. I think it's so good for us to wrestle with the hard questions. But there would always be a few kids that they'd already made up their mind. They did not want the Bible to be true. They did not want Jesus to be the only way to heaven. They wanted it to be a wide road where everybody went because they had in mind what they wanted to do, right? And Jesus was going to get in the way of that. Just like the Pharisees, just a little different flavor to it. And so no matter what evidence I would present, no matter how long we would talk, no matter how many verses I would point to, they'd just go, I don't get it. I just don't get it, just prove it to me right and like those pharisees back in the day people still look for reasons not to believe that's all they're looking for they're not looking for reasons to believe they're not looking for truth they're looking for reasons not to now jesus makes it clear that there's no gray area when it comes to him. And that's where I think a lot of these people try and hide. It's like they're in this gray area, this undecided place. Well, I'm open to it, but I don't really know. We'll see if Jesus can prove himself enough to me. And it doesn't matter what they hear, what miracles they see, they're still going, oh, I don't know." And Jesus in verse 30 makes it clear that those who are not with me are against me. It's one or the other. There's no gray area with Jesus. And I think that's a good question first of all for us to ask ourselves, but when we get in those conversations with people, and I think it's good and it's healthy for us to have those conversations about who Jesus is, is to take him to that simple place of who do you say that Jesus is? I believe he was a teacher. Oh, I believe he was a good man. I believe he was a prophet. We said stuff no one ever dared say. He said he was God and the only way to heaven. So either that's true or it's not. Either you're for him or you're against him. You gather people to him, or you scatter them away. It's, it's one or the other, right? And so he's making it very clear to them and to us that at some point we got to decide who Jesus is. Now, he warns them and us through this gospel from Matthew that there is a danger, and, and it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I want to spend just a little bit of time on this. It's important because it's been misunderstood. It's been mistaught. I've had people tell me I can't be saved. I committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'm lost forever because they didn't understand what that was. Okay? And, and it sounds, I mean, it's terrifying because Jesus says that it will not be forgiven. So, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit what is the unforgivable sin and again we we picture like the worst thing we can possibly imagine and then at some point God's gonna go that's it you've gone too far right but it's it's not that it's not some event it isn't something we do one time and that's it we're lost um, again it's important to keep what's said here in context of everything that's going on Here are these religious leaders, the men who knew the scriptures. They've seen Jesus do miracles, heal the lepers, give sight to the blind, cast out demons. They've heard his teaching. They are accountable for a lot of things. While they're still sitting there like, well, we're undecided. These were the guys that should have known. And so on top of all of that, By Scripture, we know that there is also the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. So everything that Jesus has done is being supernaturally confirmed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. There's a lot of people out there that blame all kinds of craziness and nonsense and say, Oh, that's the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit's about? Bringing people to Jesus. That's it. Now, there are things that he does to accomplish that. But that's his number one goal, is to bring people to Jesus. And so he's doing that even at this time with the scribes and Pharisees and everyone else, speaking to them, going, everything you're seeing is true. Everything that you know in the scriptures is being fulfilled right now. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is referring to is choosing unbelief in the face of all that evidence. It's telling the Holy Spirit, you're a liar. I will not believe. Now, if a person repents of that within their life, sure, they're going to be forgiven and they're going to receive forgiveness from Christ and, and receive salvation. But if they die in that state, they're lost. The only unforgivable sin is unbelief. That's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Okay? So it isn't as complicated as people make it. It's not as scary as people make it. And it's not a one-time thing that if per- a person were to say that the Holy Spirit's a liar, they're lost forever. No, they can repent, just like all sin. But if they die in that state, they're lost. It's the only thing that cannot be forgiven, is unbelief. And these religious leaders are probably more in danger than anybody else because they have so much that they know, so much that they are held accountable to. And they are... Absolutely standing in the face of the Holy Spirit saying, We will not believe you. And Jesus is very lovingly giving them a warning. Guys, you can't be forgiven of that sin. Now verse 32, excuse me, verse 33, says, Either make a tree good or its fruit and its fruit good, or else make a tree Bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that every idle word men may speak, they will be accountable for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answering, saying, Jesus, excuse me, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah for as Jonah was 3 days and 3 nights in the belly of a great fish so the son of man will be 3 days and 3 nights in the heart of the earth and the man of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of solomon and indeed a greater than solomon is here now again these warnings are being said in a large group the multitudes are right there but jesus is very pointedly shooting them at the scribes and the pharisees and they're they're beautiful but they're They're so simple and profound. The example of a tree and its fruit. It's so easy to understand. And it it explains so much about we as humans, right? We will bear fruit, good or bad. And we'll be known by it. But you can look at a tree and go, well, that's a healthy looking tree. It looks strong. It's got leaves. it's, It's a nice color. And it can bear horrible or poisonous fruit. So the outside, it looks great, but what it produces is what it will be known by, and the same is true for our lives. We can look like we've got it together on the outside. The Pharisees certainly did. They had the right robes. They had the right mannerisms. They spoke in polite tones, and they were bearing poisonous fruit, and Jesus does not mince words. He doesn't soft sell the, the, the correction he's bringing. In verse 34, he calls them a brood of vipers. There's no way you can say that in a nice tone, right? That doesn't come across like, well, maybe he meant that in a nice way, right? In fact, in their culture, that was calling them sons of the devil. That it wasn't just like, you guys are a bunch of snakes, but spiritually... You're a brood of vipers. You're connected to the the serpent of old, the devil himself. And so he's uh, dealing pretty harshly with them. But again, it's, it's correction in love. And he just tells them, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, again, the idea is the intent of the words that we speak, right? So you can say nice words. You can say polite things, but intend them to do harm. Have you ever had that conversation with Mary Sunshine and, and she says all these things and then afterwards you're like, hey, that was kind of mean. But, <laughs> but but in the conversation, you're like, oh, okay, well, she's smiling. She must mean it in a nice way. And then later you're like, no, I don't think she did, right? And that's kind of what the Pharisees do, right? They refer to Jesus as teacher And master, so there are these signs of respect and, oh, we want to see a sign from you. All these things that put them in this place of like, we we really want to know and we're seeking truth. No, they weren't. Right? The intent of their words were to trap Jesus, to get Jesus to commit himself in a way that they could somehow uh, bring accusation against him. And he's calling them on that. He's going, look, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth is speaking. You want to know what's on the inside? It's what's coming out. Now, this is the part I was convicted by. <laughs> because it doesn't just mean the spoken word. It's the word on the inside, right? So, like, on the outside, we can be, like, listening to a conversation going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And inside inside word's just like, no! <laughs> or, Shut up! Whatever we're saying inside our head, it's that that's the intent of the word and it's coming from the deep well of my heart. Good or bad? Good for us to start paying attention to the intent behind the word and the the voice within us. Verse 36, he says, But I say to you that every idle word men speak, they will give an account in the day of judgment. The word idle... is pretty much what it means in English. It means empty or meaningless. But the idea is that it's false. So again, they're calling him teacher. They're calling him master. It's false. Because there's a different intent behind it all. They're empty words. They're idle. And there's something else behind it. And I think very often, again... One of the things I was convicted about in studying through this is, is that we forget the power that is in our words. And, and there's something that I've always found interesting, and I certainly don't have an explanation for it, but that it, it's perplexing to me that the people we love the most are the ones we can be most careless with our words with. The people we're closest to, that we, we cherish the most, we, we tend to use very careless words with them. And we forget the the great damage that can be done. Now, you know, the old sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We all know that's a lie. (laughs) That is an absolute lie. I'd rather have sticks and stones, right? I can remember things that were said to me as a child, both encouraging and discouraging. Stick with me every day. Usually the discouraging ones stick a little bit more. And I've had people say, well, you know, words aren't that big a deal. You know, they're just, they only have the power we assign to them. Yes, but we have assigned power to them. And I think more than that, they just have more power than we realize. We can speak life into someone. We can bring the gospel, the good news of salvation, and the love of God to somebody's life through the words we speak. we can bring condemnation and judgment and we can bring death and only we have that choice the Holy Spirit can lead us but he will never make us do these things he'll never make us speak and the reality is whatever is coming out it's coming from somewhere inside we love to blame the circumstances on it right that if, well, if they hadn't done this, I wouldn't have said that, right? And I love, there's an old example, and I just think it's perfect. If you've got a hot cup of coffee and somebody bumps into you, and they will bump into you, what comes out? What was already inside. And, and it's not their fault that it was already there. And so in the same way somebody bumps into us and it comes out, it's because it was already there. And I believe what the Lord wants us to understand certainly it was true for the scribes and the Pharisees and for all that we're listening, it's true for us. We need to be more aware of what's on the inside. Again, not just to go, oh, I'm so horrible and I'm so bad and I can't believe I say these things or I think these things. It's so that we go, Lord, do something with what's on the inside. That now that I'm aware that From the abundance of my heart, my mouth is speaking. My my thoughts are raging. Lord, I want you to deal with the abundance of my heart. I want you to to change me. I I admit the sin that's within me, the darkness that's within me. I, I give it over to you. Change me. And again, the power of our words. Verse 37 For by your words you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. How are we justified by our words? Romans 10, verse 9 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Justified. How are we condemned? When we say, Holy Spirit, you're a liar. I don't trust you. I don't trust your word. I don't believe the things you, you're, te- you're telling me about Jesus. And you can say that in a million different ways, but that's what it boils down to for so many. Now, Jesus is speaking about these things. He's telling these guys, and again, the whole crowd, but, but pointed towards the, the leaders, the religious leaders there, warning about their false words. And then they do exactly what he was warning them about, right? Right? Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Again, making themselves look like they're seeking, they're interested. We want to understand whether or not you're the Messiah or not. We've come to be taught by you. None of that's true. And again, how many signs do you want? The demon-possessed man who is mute and blind is 100%. The dead have been raised. Lepers have been cleansed. All these things that Jesus has done, these are all signs that these guys were aware of And they want something more. That's not enough. We want something more. There isn't anything more that can be done. And they won't believe anything. And that's why Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation except for the sign of Jonah. And he goes on to speak of Jonah and Nineveh. It says, the people of Nineveh will rise up on the day of judgment and they will condemn you. Because they repented of the preaching of Jonah, which, by the way, was horrible preaching. <laughs> I mean, we, we think the story of Jonah a lot of times from cartoons and children's stories and stuff, that, no, that Jonah, when he, after the whale and everything, he ends up in Nineveh, and that his message was, repent. It wasn't. His message was, in 40 days, you're all dead, and I'm going to go up on the hill and watch it. Bye. That was his message. That was the whole thing. And people are like, dang, we should repent. And Jonah's like, no, don't do that. And and they did. So they repented at Jonah's horrible doomsday preaching. Yeah, they're going to rise up and they're going to tell those Pharisees, look, we we repented at a preacher that hated us. (laughs) And you would not repent to the Savior that loved you. The queen of the south came all the way to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Why? Because she wanted truth. That was her whole thing. Nobody went seeking after her. She came all the way to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She just wanted truth. And again, that was not a small task for her to journey all of that way. And she will condemn that generation, and go, look, I just wanted truth, and you had truth right in front of you, and you wouldn't hear it. And still they will not believe. They won't believe no matter what. Even with the sign of Jonah, which is Jesus dying and being buried in a tomb, overcoming death and resurrecting, and these same people will still not believe. Not even that will be enough for them. Verse 43 says, And when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And he enters and dwells there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. And so it shall be with this wicked generation. And while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. And one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards the disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now it seems like Jesus changes subjects or maybe jumps back to the subject of demon possession. Um, And there are some really interesting points he brings out. I think a lot of times getting to this section we get distracted about, What does it mean that a demon goes into dry places and then he brings back seven others and all these other things? Uh, And and those are interesting points that Jesus uh, mentions, but that's not the point of what he's talking about. Again, speaking to the religious leaders, but also speaking of Israel as a whole. He's warning that he is the one that's there to clear the house, to set things in order. And that this is their best opportunity to believe and repent. That there is a peace over the land right now. That there is a clarity to the word of God that has never existed until Jesus sets foot on the earth. And their opportunity to believe is right now. And if they will not believe, their end state will be worse than their first. That in the end... What's been set in order will all come to destruction. And it would all happen by 70 A.D. All of Jerusalem, completely leveled. And he's warning them that this is the time. Don't keep putting it off. And and we know that this is an example or a picture of, of those things when he says, and so it shall also be with this wicked generation. That those who were there, those that... Heard Jesus saw the miracles he did; it's their best opportunity to believe. And if they would not believe, their end would be far worse. And then there's this like little side note: that Jesus' mom and his brother show up, which is important uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, being raised Catholic, I was always told that Jesus had no other family; that Mary was always a virgin. Um, cannot be explained through Scripture at all. That's just church tradition. Uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters. And and they arrive, and it could sound like Jesus is being rude, right? Mom's at the door, brothers are there, and he's like, who are my mother? What what he's saying again is it's all tying together with the context of what's happened, right? The religious leaders are the ones going, we're the ones favored and chosen by God. We are the family of God as Israel. And what Jesus is saying is like, no, it's not about who you think you are. It's not even by blood as far as being of Israel. Who are those favored by God? Who are his family? Those who do the will of the Father. That's it. It wasn't the Pharisees just because of who they were. It wasn't Israel because of blood. It wasn't by any tradition or any heritage It's those who do the will of his Father in heaven. Man, we've been adopted into an amazing family. But it is up to us to do the will of our Father in heaven. And so much of that comes down to the words we say. It it reveals who we are. It reveals what we actually believe. We can play church, and we can play religion, and we can play churchianity, but our words reveal who we are. And our thoughts and the intents of our heart are known only to us, should be like a mirror held up to say, Lord, these are the things I need to work on. I need you to work on in me, right? And give us the opportunity to be those that speak life and hope and salvation from honesty, right? Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful with your love, with your patience with us, and that you have bound the strong man. You have set us free. Lord, we are the treasures that you came to seek and save. And and Lord, we want to be also those that are reaching out to the lost around us. We want to be used by you to see your kingdom expand and for souls to be saved. And we pray that you would use us, you would change us to be usable in your hands. And we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.